Good morning. Hey, how are you guys? Good. Good. My name is Jason. For those of you who don't know, I'm the co-minister here at Oceanside Sanctuary along with Janelle and, of course, Alex and Joey, also ministers on staff with us. We are in the middle of a series that I have just been too lazy to give a title or a fancy like design to, but it's something like, you know, women of resurrection. So since Easter, we've been visiting the stories of women in the, in the New Testament whose leadership and lives of leadership in the church represent what I think is the life of resurrection. Today, we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 18 at the story of Priscilla. But before we do, I just want to invite you to say a prayer with me before we jump into the text. God, we thank you so much for today, again, for this opportunity for us to gather in this space to uh, dedicate time and space, whether it's in person or online, to set aside a moment of our lives in the midst of our busyness, in the midst of the demands of our families and our friends. We ask that you would consecrate this space for us, that our hearts would find rest and refuge here for a moment so that we can reorient ourselves to you, to your gospel, and to your goodness, and to how that liberates us in our lives to live truly authentic human lives. Teach us to love, as we sang today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know Janelle and I uh, were married very young. Our favorite joke is we were both too young to drink at our own wedding. So we were 19 and 20. I was, you know, the ripe old age of 20 years old when we married. We met in high school. Uh, she captured my attention in drama class. We were in drama class together our senior year of high school. And there was an empty seat on the other side of the, the classroom. On the first day of school, I was seated all the way to the left, and she was seated all the way to the right. And there were three uh, attractive uh, young women and an empty seat right between them. And uh, <laughs> by the next day, I was seated in that seat. And... Uh, and uh, Janelle was the one of the three who utterly ignored me. She was uh, very good at ignoring all my best stuff, <laughs> which wasn't very good. Looking back, it was not good stuff. But she, uh, she thought that I was ridiculous. And I just found that to be incredibly compelling. And so, <laughs> and so I uh, pursued her, and then eventually we became very close friends, and then eventually, obviously, uh, became romantically involved and got married very young, 19 and 20. And then in our early 20s, we moved from California to Utah, and it was a kind of quarter-life crisis for me, and that thrust us into this place, both of us, really, of a kind of secondary conversion experience. We were both raised in church. Uh, Janelle Southern Baptist, me, Calvary Chapel, sort of fundamentalist, uh, conservative, conservative expressions of church. We landed in a wildly Pentecostal church in the mountains of Utah, where we both experienced this kind of secondary conversion. And there's a whole lot to this story. I won't bore you with most of it. But the portion of this story that's pertinent for you today is that early I found that the elders in the church, the men in that church, the men who are wise and learned and in charge, 
part of what they did was they took the younger men like me aside and wanted to make sure that we knew that it was our spiritual duty to be the heads of our households, that it was our job to be leaders and in charge. Now, I don't know if you've met Janelle. (laughs) But it quickly became apparent to me that what they meant by spiritual leadership was dominance. That in fact, what they meant by leadership in general was a kind of dominance and forcefulness. And of course, that just wouldn't ever work for me and Janelle. Because we already had a pretty tight partnership. And so uh, I just ignored that part of what we were learning in that church. And uh, the best expressions of leadership that I have seen to this day are expressions where people with different attributes, different qualities whether that be male and female or other kinds of differences, come together and they work together in harmony to do good things. I think we see the same thing here in the story of Aquila and Priscilla. This is Acts chapter 18. Uh, I'm going to read to you from verse 24 to 26, and we'll stop there. Verse 24 says, Now there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos. Now, real quick, just to reorient you, we're in the book of Acts. In this passage, we've been in Acts the last couple weeks. This is Luke, the follower of Jesus, the disciple of Jesus. Luke has written written this extension of his gospel of Luke to tell the story of the early church. And so we jump in on the sort of the middle of this story when Luke tells us that there came to Ephesus a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. He was an eloquent man, well-versed in the scriptures. And he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with a burning enthusiasm and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, we'll pause there just for a moment. This is important for our our context. Uh, What we have here is an eloquent, learned man named Apollos who was of Jewish heritage, uh, but he is attracted to the story of Jesus. He's interested in telling this story, but he really doesn't know anything about what Luke is calling the baptism of Jesus. Instead, he only knows about John, that is John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus who who baptized Jesus. So Apollos's understanding is limited. He speaks the truth, he speaks it well, he's compelling, he's interesting, but his understanding is limited. Verse 26, says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wished to cross over to Achaia, the believers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Who are these people, Priscilla and Aquila? Well, this is a married couple. What we know about Priscilla and Aquila is that they were Roman citizens, that Priscilla was likely a Roman-born citizen who then married Aquila, who we know from other passages in Scripture was of Jewish heritage. In 49 AD, this married couple, Priscilla and Aquila, were cast out of Rome because the Jews were expelled from Rome at that time. And at that time, they traveled to Corinth. Now, in Corinth, they met another Jewish person, 
named Paul. And the reason they met Paul is because they were all tent makers. And so Priscilla and Aquila left Rome and went to find work in Corinth. And their work was tent making. So they happened upon this other tent maker named Paul. And it turns out that they all were followers of Christ. So Paul didn't convert them. Somehow they connected with the story of Jesus before this. And then they became uh, in fellowship together. They joined together in the church and they joined Paul on his missionary journeys to Syria. Turns out that Priscilla and Aquila helped Paul found the church in Corinth. So the letter in the New Testament that we have to the Corinthians is to this church that Paul and Priscilla and Aquila founded together. Here's the interesting bit. You look all the way back into the fourth century, you pull from one of the sermons of John Chrysostom, who is one of the early fathers of the church. John Chrysostom actually wrote the liturgy that Orthodox churches still use to this day, in the fourth century. This is how important he is to the history of Christianity. Back then in the fourth century, this is what he wrote about this very passage. For Luke did not say, great Aquila and Priscilla, but said Priscilla and Aquila. He does not do this without reason, but he seems to me to acknowledge a greater godliness for her than for her husband. She took Apollos, an eloquent man and powerful in the scriptures, but knowing only the baptism of John, she instructed him in the way of the Lord and made him a teacher brought to completion. This is the tradition of the church. That this married couple that ministered together ministered largely because of the gifts of Priscilla. And Priscilla was considered a highly influential early leader in the church. At least two early Roman churches bear the name of Saint Priscilla. She is highly venerated in the old liturgical traditions for this reason. We find her mentioned throughout the New Testament, particularly, of course, by Paul, in addition to Luke, because he commends her as one of his leaders in the early church. Several biblical scholars today have put forth the idea that Priscilla is actually the most likely author of the book of Hebrews, which is the only epistle we have in the New Testament that does not have a conspicuous authorship attributed to it, which was highly unusual. It would have been normal practice, normal custom to not only introduce yourself in a letter that you were circulating, but because these are authoritative spiritual matters, it matters who the author is. You need to establish your authority, your ability to speak into important things. But Hebrews has been erased of its authorship, and that's one of the most compelling reasons to attribute it to an early woman leader in the church. Because women are often erased from their influence, especially as patriarchy begins to take deeper root later on in the history of the church. So here we have Priscilla with her husband. Pulling Apollos aside and teaching him, correcting him, helping him to deepen his understanding. Doesn't this contradict Paul's own teaching in 1 Timothy 2, verse 12, where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or hold authority over a man in the church. 
Doesn't this seem to be a violation of Paul's own ethic or rule in this case? In 1 Corinthians 11.5, Paul seems to contradict himself when he says, when a woman prophesies in church, she should cover her head with a head covering. And he launches into a fairly long and complicated argument about the culture of that community. So here Paul doesn't say that women shouldn't speak in church. In fact, he acknowledges that women do speak in church. He just says that when women speak in church, they should cover their heads because that is shameful if they don't. None of this makes any sense to us. If you're sitting there wondering what this has to do with you and your life, I'm kind of wondering the same thing. <laughs> Why does Paul like, get into this convoluted argument about you know, how a woman is shamed if she has short hair and a man is shamed if he has long hair and therefore a woman has to cover her head in order for her to be under proper authority? What does any of this have to do with the gospel? Paul himself says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, for there is no longer in Christ Jesus, you know this passage, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female. Paul seems to import this idea that in Christ, in our faith in Christ, those differences are eradicated. That our spiritual lives exemplify something that transcends those hierarchies, those differences, those needs for us to separate and segregate and distinguish between those who are worthy and those who are not. Those are high words Paul speaks in Galatians 3.28. Is that not a contradiction? I think the key to understanding these kinds of passages is this bit from Paul. Again, I, I, you know, I have issues with Paul too, okay? But hear him out in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law. And to the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. And here's the payoff. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel so that I may share in its blessings. This is the key to understanding these differences of culture. Paul is saying that there are different cultural expectations in different cultural contexts, and he is more than willing to adapt himself to those different expectations in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. Whatever those expectations might be, he looks for an opportunity to adapt himself so that the gospel can be heard. This is the important part. The gospel is not a culture. The gospel is not a set of practices or a set of habits or a set of rituals or a particular kind of aesthetic 
or a particular set of morals or ethics even. These things change from one culture to the next. God is not a culture. God is not ancient Near Eastern culture. God is not 21st century American culture. God is not 16th century American culture. God is not American culture at all. God is not a culture. God is the personification of goodness and righteousness and beauty. That is what we talk about when we talk about God. We talk about the very best, the highest quality of our lives, that which is really, truly good and right and pure, that which produces peace, fulfillment in our lives, genuine shalom. That is God. Jesus' gospel, Jesus' good news about that God, Luke chapter 4, verse 18, is that the gospel is good news for the oppressed, good news for the poor, good news for the sick. Whatever your culture, whatever time or place you live in, whatever your aesthetic preferences, whatever practices or traditions you inherited, the gospel is the news about God's goodness in that culture, that context. Anytime the good news comes, it is good news for the poor, the oppressed, for the sick. Paul adapts to culture so that this gospel can transform that culture. The Scottish theologian called this the principles of indigenizing and pilgrimizing. This idea that when we bring the goodness of God or when we experience the goodness of God, the goodness of God is indigenizing in our lives. It takes on our skin. It takes on our flesh. It takes on our culture. It clothes itself. It incarnates itself, just like God incarnated God's self in the person of Christ. It indigenizes so that we can understand it, so that we can experience it, so that we can connect with it. God can never be expressed in any way other than through culture, but God is not that culture. At the heart of what we experience that we call God is this goodness that we are moving towards. And as we move towards it as pilgrims, on our journey to become more fully human, we challenge and transform the culture around us. Because just as every culture has good expressions, it also has oppressive, bondage-making, poverty-making, crushing systems. And so as we partner with God, those Systems are being challenged around us. Some expressions of Christianity are on a pilgrimage in the wrong direction when it comes to women. Some expressions of Christianity are looking back at ancient Near Eastern culture and saying, well, this is what it means to be good. It means to put women in their place. 
It means that they should be under the rulership of men. But there is an inkling of the gospel in the story of Priscilla that she possessed the gifts and the goodness of God to teach a man, Apollos. And I would suggest that every single one of us knows that women can and do lead, that women can and do teach, that women can and do conduct themselves in every affair on this planet in ways that are truly good and righteous and beautiful. And when they do, when you do, that is God at work within you. And it's the gospel to the rest of us. That's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much again for this opportunity for us to gather and to hear the words of this text, to wrestle with them. to bring our hearts and our minds before these passages of Scripture so that we can encounter the gospel in every conceivable way. As we do, as we read these words and sing these songs and pray these prayers, we ask that you would bring our hearts on that pilgrimage to be closer to the goodness and the righteousness and the beauty that your gospel represents. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. My name is uh, CJ. A few quick announcements for you. Some great ways to get connected here at the Oceanside Sanctuary in addition to being here in person or watching online. Oceanside Sanctuaries uh, has some great ways to connect with each other and get involved. Coming up on Tuesday, starting on May 16th, How Not to Read the Bible. If you participated in this before, you are certainly welcome to do it again. If you have not, it's a great opportunity for uh, to join a six-week session via the Zoom. And it's a great opportunity to read, read the scripture from an intelligent, faithful, and radically inclusive perspective. You can find that uh, more information on the Oceanside Sanctuary website. Also coming up, the Roots class scheduled for Saturday, May the 13th. This is a one-session opportunity for three hours, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. right here at the Oceanside Sanctuary. Also, you can do the hybrid of the Zoom. If you're new to and donuts from Parlor, step that up right there. Thank you, Jason. Parlor Donuts, ladies and gentlemen, at the next Roots class. Get all sugared up. So this is a great opportunity if you are new to the Oceanside Sanctuary to learn a little bit more about what happens here, what the Oceanside Sanctuary is all about. If you'd like a little refresher course and you've been coming but you haven't been paying, atten paying attention or listening to Jason or anything that's happening here, this is, a great, this is a great place to come and be part of it. Once again, coming up on May the 13th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. Also, the book club. This is a regular, uh, regular monthly occurrence every first Thursday. That's going to be this Thursday, May the fourth, six thirty p.m. Also via the world famous Zoom. Our May book is called "A Generous 
Orthodoxy by Brian D. McLaren. Whether you find yourself inside, outside, or somewhere on the fringe of Christianity, he walks you through the many traditions of faith, bringing to the center a way of life that draws us closer to Christ and to each other. You can RSVP for all these events, all these upcoming activities, Yoshitsite Sanctuary. As a reminder, the Oceanside Sanctuary is 501c3. If you ever wonder where your monies go, take a look at all the kids' stuff that's going on over here. We need some stuff for the kids, y'all. All right. Got these fancy new banners up here behind the uh, OSC band. All right. Jason always has got a fancy flannel on on Sunday mornings. <laughs> so when you give... Money impacts this community. I know that was a little bit of a joke, but show up on Mondays and watch all of our friends from the community that are being impacted by our food pantry. You can drop money in the little box on the way out, but the best way to do it is just jump online, read more about it at the Oceanside Sanctuary, and you can give monthly to support. Quick announcement, last minute announcement. Um, if you are parked, Alex, Alex is at this parking lot or is one across, one across the street. So if you're going to go into Oceanside, and eat something amazing after the, the service this morning, make sure you move your car because it's going to get locked up in there. All right. And then as you get ready to leave today, thank you, Jason, for sharing some really inspiring thoughts today. I think we all deal with stuff all week long, right? Whether it's anxiety, difficult coworkers, that challenging email or phone call. And I'm not great about this, and I'm going to work on this this week. But this week, maybe we take breath, we step back and step into the presence of God for just a second. Whatever that looks like for each of you, just take a breath, step back, step into the presence of God, and see how that goes from there. Have a great week, everybody. May the peace of God be with you. Also with you. Let the church.